always try to quote verse 1 through 10 in regards to baptism when we observe the ordinance of baptism. But I want to look more specifically at verses 11 through 23 this morning, but we will be reviewing that as well. So much of that centers, and you've heard me speak much about the centrality of Christ in our baptism into Christ. This morning was a little bit of a unique occasion for our church. It's only happened one other time uh, in the 18 years that I've served as your pastor. And uh, I think it's only happened one other time since I've been a member at Diamond Hill for 30 years uh, that Letha has not yet committed to uniting with this local fellowship of believers. Uh, They still have some logistics to work out in regards to where they'll be residing. And so we are baptizing her, or she was baptized today in pro- along her profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's only happened one other time. Some of you may remember Brittany Teague. She was a young girl uh, who was going off to the Naval Academy. She wanted to be a fighter pilot. I think she actually became a fighter pilot. Uh, but she came to know the Lord here uh, in this church, and so she asked that she could be baptized here, and we did that. And those are the only two occasions, but I thought it was important in each of those occasions, this one today as well, uh, is to reiterate our position in regards to that baptism. Uh, it, is, it is the profession or is the public confession uh, of a believer of what has taken place in their lives. Uh, so I think it's certainly appropriate to baptize those who are believing. In fact, if you uh, look at all the references to that, most of the time that follows those who have believed. Uh, Certainly there's the presumption, and I think as church history unfolded, it became more directly attached to local church membership, uh, but it wasn't exclusive to that. There were circumstances in scripture, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip being one, uh, where there was no occasion or no indication that uh, the eunuch joined any local fellowship of believers. Uh, Certainly there are other places in scripture as well. Uh, Paul himself, Uh, said he didn't baptize very many people at all, but only a handful of those people. But I think that had more to do with Paul's role as a a missionary. And I think he was certainly looking towards connecting that with local church membership. So it just makes a good opportunity uh, when that occasion arises and when those exceptions arise to, to point out or to illustrate the fact that baptism is to follow our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In believing, yes, Local church fellowship is a critical to that. It's a part of that, and we should not dis- disconnect it from that at all. But we should not limit it to local church membership as well. There may be occasions where we baptize upon a profession of faith in Jesus Christ because it's true of that person, and certainly they are united to the universal body of Christ. So just an explanatory uh, note there as well. So in verse chapter 6 of Romans... Uh, I'll read the passage that Mike wrote or read from and then all the way through verse 23, but just want to share a few thoughts from there this morning. I always like to to back up into chapter 5, verse 20. You really could go all the way to verse 18. But the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's what he's keying on in the beginning in chapter 6. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's anticipating in chapter 6 verse 1 of what they might say. What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin then that grace may abound? After all, we're grace people. We want grace. And Paul's answer to that is, may it never be. Well, what's the basis for that? How, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death, which we've just seen a portrayal of that uh, with water baptism. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And for the life that he lives, he lives to God. And these, this is, I think, the exhortation based upon the reality he's just told us about in chapter 6, verse 1 through 10. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Well, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. <laughs> That's a striking thing to say. Therefore, when, what benefit were you then deriving from those things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as always, we are dependent upon you for understanding, for clarity, for discernment. So I pray that you might grant that this morning, not only in the speaking this morning from this spot, but also in the hearing as well. Lord, we thank you for the observance of baptism this morning, for the portrait that that paints uh, for what's happened to us in Jesus Christ by your grace. 
Lord, we're thankful that having been united to him, we are buried with Christ. We are crucified with Christ and also raised with him. Lord, what an extraordinary blessing this is. And I pray that it might come to bear on our own hearts this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I was looking at verse 11. I've always been fascinated by that, uh, the phrasing there, verse 11. Even so, he says, consider, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Uh, I realized early on uh, that I could consider something, but, and it may not be my fleshly experience. It's a consideration he's saying to make. And so I think it's a consideration based upon faith. As I've already mentioned earlier in some of those earlier comments, uh, baptism by water uh, really all, almost always followed uh, the believing of the gospel, which was our union with Christ, death, resurrection, or burial and resurrection with Jesus Christ. They believed the gospel, and having believed, they were baptized in water. Certainly there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit we are baptized into Christ. So there is that union there as well. And that's what Paul has described in verses 1 through 10 here. Even in regards to grace, the very first verse in chapter 6, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And he gives the decisive answer, of course not. How can you continue in sin when you've been made to die to sin? How shall we who died to sin still live in that? That's the, that's the reality, the positional reality of our having been joined to Christ. That is the truth undergirding the consideration. And that's, that's critical as well. He's not saying that we just uh, assume some attitude about living the Christian life. That consideration is grounded in, in faith and that faith is grounded in reality and in truth. That is the truth. If you've received Christ today as your Lord and Savior, and you have been born again and have experienced the new birth, however you may describe it, this is exactly what has taken place in your life. And you may say, well, I don't feel like I'm a new person. I don't, I don't feel like I've broken free now from the persuasion of sin. I don't think I've, uh, uh, I've been sanctified or delivered over completely from the, from the lure, as it will, of my own sinful nature. Well, that's how you feel. And there's some truth in that in regards to sanctification. And I think the Bible is not teaching us to ignore our senses, but when Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight, I think he means there that my life is governed and my thinking is being shaped by what is recorded by in the Word as true, even if that's not my present experience. And to me, that's critical because if you're waiting to live the Christian life on a feeling, you're going to be waiting a long time because I don't wake up every Monday morning feeling like a Christian. But I do wake up remembering what God has said in regards to who I am in Christ. And then I go out that day and that week trying to hold fast and, and to make these considerations in regards to what he has said. And that's what he's laying out in verses 1 through 10. All of you, verse 3, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. You've heard me say many times that I grew up 
sort of with the inclination that we look at the work of Jesus and, and we're so thankful for what he did for us that we believe in him and we're saved through that belief. I never understood until many years later, really in my own new birth, that the reason for the cross was not only for the sacrifice of Christ, but that there might be a means by which I could die and both live. That's, that's very different from being thankful for what Jesus was doing upon the cross. Yes, there is a substitutionary uh, 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 aspect to his death upon the cross, but it is also so that it might facilitate the, the death of the old man so that he might die and yet be made to live again. Without union with Christ, that's not going to happen. Because if you die for your own sins, you, your death will not be sufficient to pay the debt that you owe in sinning against a holy God. And therefore, death will never release you. You will be eternally dead because you will not have paid the debt. And so the, the wages will not have been paid. Therefore, you will never be released out up from death. And the only way you can be released from that is to die in Christ whose righteousness pays the debt and whose perfect sinless life pays the debt and therefore can be released from death. The scriptures teach that death could not hold him. And just as it could not hold him, neither could it hold those who have been united to him. And you're alive today because of Christ but because of your union with Christ. If you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, you've been baptized into his death. Verse 4, that we, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Remember that phrase because he's coming back to that in verse 11 and beyond. So we've been delivered in that sense. Now, if we had died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. So that's the, that's the ground reality for the consideration he's about to ask us to make. So Paul's not saying, forget about, forget about everything and just think this way. We live in a world today that thinks somehow or another the power of thinking can create reality. This is not what Paul is saying for us to do. Your thinking isn't producing this reality. This reality should be producing or shaping your thinking. Consider yourselves therefore. And that's huge. If you're going to consider yourselves something, then there must be some reality underneath it. My granddaughter was, I took a little video of this, but she put, a, she put a, a basket over her back and she walked into the room like a turtle and she raised up the basket and she says, I identify as a turtle. My pronouns are it, what's that, and that thing. And she's not a turtle. And she's mocking the, the culture today that says, if I think it, I must be there for reality. She knows in reality she's not a turtle. 
And she's mocking such ideology that's pervasive and intelligent people are embracing in our generation today. This is not what Paul is saying to us in verse 11. He's not saying, think this way and then it'll be true. He's saying, only if it is true can you think this way. That's a huge difference. I'm not asking you, and Paul is not asking you, to think in regards to the Christian life according to something that we're making up or, or that we're draw, pulling off the wall somewhere. There is a reality that is portrayed in the baptism you just witnessed in your relationship with Christ upon which you can begin to make this consideration. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Two things he mentions in verse 11. First of all, I said it's a consideration rooted in faith. And that faith is rooted in truth and in reality. So the consideration is two, two aspects there. Essentially, you're to consider yourself to be dead to sin. Verses 6 and 7, I've already mentioned, he says, those who have died to sin are no longer slaves of sin. You're dead, you're dead to sin, so sin can no, can no more now does not have to be able to exploit you. In other words, if I'm alive and a sinner, sin has power over me because it can exploit my sinful nature. But if that sinful nature has been crucified, then I'm not bound now to be tempted by sin. You see the freedom there? I was, he, he says later on, when you were sinning according to your unrighteousness, were you at, at, at all bothered by righteousness? <laughs> no, you didn't, you didn't have any righteousness at all. In fact, righteousness couldn't exploit anything in you because there's nothing righteous in you. Even if you did righteous deeds, they were unrighteous because you were doing them out of an unrighteous nature. You had no problem with righteousness whatsoever when you were consumed and under the slavery of sinfulness and unrighteousness. That's what he's saying here. According to this reality... This union with Christ and what has been accomplished in the, in the new birth in Jesus Christ. Then the consideration of our minds should be that we are not bound now to sin. We are not compelled by nature to answer sin's temptation. Because what, was, what it was once tempting has been crucified with Christ. Believe that. Believe that. Because it's key to your fighting the inclinations of the flesh. How often do you sin and you say to yourself, well, I just couldn't control myself. Well, when you were apart from Christ, you truly couldn't. You couldn't control yourself because sin was reaching out to something corresponding with itself deep within. And you had no defenses against the lure of sin. But that old man that was once lured away has been crucified in Christ. He no longer lives in reality, positionally speaking. And the key to living out the fullness of that positional reality is your adherence, apprehension of that by faith. That's why I think so many of us Christians struggle so with sin is because we are not walking by faith. We are walking according to the, to the, to the fleshly desires and the sensations of the flesh. And so we succumb to those as though we are helpless against sin and its temptation. This is what Paul is trying to say. No, you're not. And if you disregard it and say, well, thank God we're under grace, so let sin abound because the more sin, the more grace, and I want more grace. And he says, no, if you're thinking that way, you don't understand what's happened. You're, you're feeding a dead man. 
You're digging him up out of the ground and you're inserting to him life support and you're cramming food into a dead man's life. He's dead. He's been crucified with Christ. And that's the key for your to living out this life as a Christian in obedience to God. I think sometimes we don't understand that reality upon which we're to live our lives. And this is exactly, I think, what Paul is saying. So the first consideration is that we're dead. We've been made to die to sin in Christ Jesus. But the second part of that is we've been made alive to God in Christ Jesus. Once dead to the things of God and alive to sins allure in Christ, the exchange has happened. Now the one, the one once allured by his sin has been crucified and the new man is allured by a different thing, God. Man, that's, that's worthy of shouting. I mean, the old man has been crucified and a new man has been created anew and that new man is corresponding to the God and the righteousness of that God. Now he's able to answer and to behold and to, and to rejoice and to glory in the glory of God. He didn't do that when he was lost because there was nothing in him corresponding to the righteousness of God. Only The only mention of the law was even a condemnation of him because it illuminated the fact that he had no desires for God. He had no holy inclinations whatsoever. He was, to his very core, he was a dead man bound and enslaved to his sin. That's what he says. So that's the consideration. Now try to consider that out of the context of what he's already described that's happened in our union with Christ. Do that with your own flesh and your own strength. Drum that up in your own mind and by the power of your flesh, just believe, believe, believe and see how successful you are. But if you root that in Christ and Christ is the one receiving the glory and the, and the righteousness of God flows out through Christ into our lives, you'll find that there will be a, a growing disgusting disgust or distaste for sin. There is nothing corresponding in me by which it can exploit me anymore. I've, I've been delivered from that dead man's desires. And God, by His Spirit, is cultivating in me as a Christian more and more holy desires. So based upon that truth, what exhortations does He give us? In verse 12, the very first one, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. I think key there is the reigning of sin. Is it the Christian's experience that we sin? Yes. Yes. But I think it's directly rooted to our unbelieving of what he's already described in verses 1 through 6. It's our, it's our not accessing that reality by faith, not believing in such a way that our lives are yielded over to that truth wholly. So we're in this process called sanctification by which that reality is brought to bear more and more and more in our lives. But just the reality alone has broken the reign of sin. You ever think about this? You're not, you're not falling to sin, Christian, because sin is reigning in your life. You're falling because you are submitting to it. It has no power over you in Christ. 
You've been delivered from that. There, sin has no corresponding evil in you to, 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 by which to bring you into bondage. We, we are doing it by habit. We lived all of our lives in that sort of bondage. And to be honest, sometimes we just think it's more comfortable to live in the familiar than in the unfamiliar. Everybody in this room has far more experience living in unholiness than you do living in holiness, right? which you think is going to come more naturally to you or more easily to you. I can tell you right now that God's call, Peter saying, be ye holy as your Father in heaven is holy, that call is a whole lot more contrary to my life's experience. And if I don't access that according to truth, then I, it may not be accessed according to my experience because that is not always my experience. But the reality is, is that the reign of sin, the power of sin to, to control and enslave you is broken in Christ, in union with Christ. Why? Because the man that was subject to that slavery has died, has been crucified. I've used the imagery before that it's as if we realize that and then we put him away. And then we get up Monday morning and we go dig him up out of the grave and we throw him over our shoulders and we walk around with him all day and we, we're like a ventriloquist. We, we act and we work through him and we play like he's alive and the reality is he's been crucified but oh, we miss him so much, we, we portray him as alive. That's how ridiculous that imagery is. So we're to not let sin reign in our mortal body. What happens if it rains? You see that in the second phrase, you obey its lust. Do you want to know whether or not sin is reigning in your mortal body today, Christian? Are you obeying its lust consistently and particularly overwhelmingly? I'm not saying to you in a moment of weakness sometimes, in a moment of faithfulness, fall into some sin. I'm saying it's the pattern that, that you are obeying the lust of the flesh. If you are consistently, you are allowing sin to reign where he has no authority if you're truly a born-again Christian. Or it may be that you're not born again at all. And you're trying to resist the reign of sin with the natural man. Well, good luck with that. And that's not going to happen. You're going to succumb to that every single time. So he says to us, do not let sin reign in your body. Not only that reign, but closely associated to that as well. Verse 13, don't go on. That's an interesting phrase too. That's what you were doing. <laughs> Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So stop doing that. In other words, consider these things. Number one, you are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So based on that reality, stop letting sin reign in your life. Stop succumbing to the lust of the flesh. You're not bound by anything to do that other than your faithlessness. So according to the realities of your union with Christ, don't let sin reign in your life. And while you're not letting sin reign or coming under its mastery, stop yielding up your body, your eyes and your ears and your hands and your feet and your fleshly members to be instruments of unrighteousness. Stop acting as though you're under the enslavement of sin. Stop thinking you are and stop acting as though you are. Man, that's a high calling, isn't it? That's a tough one. 
Especially if you're not convinced that you have broken, had the reign of sin broken in your life by your union with Christ, your death and resurrection with Christ. If you're not absolutely convinced of that reality, then it's going to be hard to not let your members be, become subject to be used for unrighteousness. Because you're going to always say, woe is me. The devil made me do it. I've just got a sinful nature. I have to confess to you that I've, I've justified sin in my life by saying things like that. And I'll, I'll, I'll gamble this morning that you probably said it if, unless you're so sanctified that you just thought it. But we have the same escape hatch. Well, it's just human. It's just the flesh. We'll never be perfect. Well, no, we sure won't. But we'll never even experience how perfection will eventually come someday if we ignore the reality of what's taken place in our union with Christ. That's, I've said this many times. That's why Christ gives us two ordinances for the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, pointing to that union because if you don't understand what's happening in that union there, then you're ill-equipped to consider rightly in regards to living the Christian faith. So don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies, he says. He says that to Letha, who's baptized this morning. He says it to me, who's been baptized, and, and to those who are about to be baptized in Diamond Hills Fellowship and all those who have gone through baptism. He's saying that to you and to all of us. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies, and don't yield up your members to sin to serve unrighteousness. You're a different person. The dead man used to do that, and he did it by instinct. But you're something more than that. You're something different than that. You've been born anew in Christ. He gives us the contrary part here, verse 13. Rather than that, present yourselves. Notice here it doesn't say just members. He says yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's the alternative. I've often think to myself, it's one thing to tell me not to do something and not give me something to put in its place. But to me, it's incredibly powerful when God says, don't do this, rather do this. Because now, now I've got, I'm redirecting that now. He doesn't say, just stop doing that. Then I'm living my whole life. I've said this before, but one of the problems I've had sometimes with, with like, uh, substance abuse counseling sessions, you know, where they get the whole group together and, and they talk about their addictions. One of the problems I've had with that, and I've talked to people who have gone through that. And you know what they tell me? As soon as that session is over, I go get high. And I said, well, why would you do that? And he says, because we, spot, we sat and talked two hours about getting high. I didn't get high all week until we got together and talked about getting high. Then I left and got high. And to me, it's because they're not offering an alternative there to getting high. They're not offering something that is, can be of greater desire and a yearning. I've learned in my own life that I forsake sin most quickly when I receive the things of God as preferable to sin. I want holiness rather than wickedness. And it's a whole lot easier to put those things aside when there's something greater and more desirable in my life. But see, that old man don't have those desires. And if you try to impose those into his life, he's going to make them into a list of rules and become self-righteous according to his own success in keeping those things. But oh, if you change his nature, he desires those things and he loves God. Consider yourselves this way. Not by your own strength and not by your own intellect, but by the reality of what Christ has accomplished in bringing you into himself and taking you down into the grave and raising you up to new life. He's alive unto God. So as those people, 
Present your entire self to God. Not just your members, but the very essence of who you are. Your, your intellect, your emotions, your, 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 your hobbies, your members, your work, your career. All of life is sacred now for the believer because he belongs to God. So stop using what belongs to God to continue to serve an old master. He's not your master anymore. He doesn't have to be. And if you submit to him, you do so willingly, not under any compulsion, for the old man has been crucified with Christ. I think this is what Paul means. The daily apprehension of this when he says, I die daily. The daily reconsideration of that reality the daily application of that reality by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's Word, the shaping of me daily as that takes place. And the more that happens, the more sanctified and Christ-like I become. And the more sin loses its pull upon me because the less I'm living in the old man's nature and the more fully I'm living in the new man. Verse 15 or verse 14 I love this passage, and I ask you to remember that earlier because he's already said you're no longer slaves of sin, those who have died to sin. But look what he says here. For sin shall not be master over you, master over you, for you're not under law but under grace. May it, may it never be, he says. Or verse 15, what then shall we sin because we're under law, uh, under law, not under law but under grace? May it never be. So it's interesting to me because he says, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law. So in other words, if you're trying to achieve this under the law, <clears throat> sin still master over you because the law can't justify you. Do you know the law can kill, the law can bring condemnation and kill the old man? But, but never having satisfied the law by your death, you can't, you can't be released from the condemnation of the law. In other words, if the commandment says thou shalt not kill and you kill, then the sentence is death upon you. But you've violated a command of an infinitely holy God. So at what point will your death pay the penalty sufficient for a sin against an, an eternally, infinitely holy God? It never will pay the pay the price so that you'll be held in death. That's what he's saying. Sin is master over you if you're under the law. Sin will be the master over you. But he says you're not under that law, you're under grace. Why? Because in union with Christ, Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. And we've been raised to new life. We are living now under grace in Christ, in union with Christ. And the law actually can be helpful to the Christian who is living that way and instructing us in regards to the righteousness of God. So we're not suggesting that we be lawless or antinomian in any way. We are not... Sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law but under grace. What then, he says, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. I love his analogy here, but he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves to the one you presented yourself to? If I present myself as a slave unto obedience to you, guess who my master is? You. <laughs> You become my master. My master is whoever I submit to. So Christian, if you're submitting to the power of sin in your life, 
If you're submitting to the condemnation of the law and all those things, if you're submitting to that, you're yielding yourself up and acknowledging in that submission that you have that master. And so for the Christian not to consider this and the reality of our union with Christ is to say to God himself who has delivered us from that old master that we would like to remain under the obedience to that old master even as a new man. See how ridiculous that is? But in some ways, that's what we do as professing Christians, continuing to yield to the temptations of the flesh and to the desires of the old man. We're essentially saying to God who has delivered us from that old master that we prefer the old master. He's predictable and he's easier to get along with. And so we're going to yield to him. That's how ridiculous it is. Who are you yielding to today? Are you the slaves of the one whom you are obeying? Christian or non-believer, who's your master? And how would that be determined by the way you're living your life? Whoever you're submitting to is your master. And if you find that you're overwhelmingly submitting to the inclinations and desires of the flesh, your master is not Christ. Your master is not God. Your master is the evil one. You are a son of your father, as Jesus rebuked the religious leaders. Paul really boils it down. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, that way we all were there. We know what it's like to be a slave of sin. Though you were that, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were commanded, committed. And having been freed from sin, then you became slaves of righteousness. I love 19 because he's bringing it down on our level here. I'm speaking in human terms. Because of the weakness of your flesh, but for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, he says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So he's drawing from the experience of, of all of us when we were once enslaved to sin. When we were enslaved to that, you gave everything you had to that master, everything you did your members, your thinking, your way of life, your worldview, everything was submitted over to that master. You lived your life and you were completely familiar with that master and had learned to live under his reign. And he says, I'm speaking according to the flesh. I want you to have something corresponding to the type of obedience, unyielding and whole, uh, whole giving of oneself over to something different. And the only way I can explain to you this idea of the whole giving of oneself over is to go back to your enslavement to sin because that's the analogy. I think I've always said it this way. When I was in sin and unrighteousness, I didn't, I didn't have any problems occasionally messing up and doing something righteous. I mean, I didn't feel myself, whoops, sorry about that. I didn't mean to think positive thoughts about God today. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't bothered by anything righteous. I'm wholly given over to unrighteousness because that's who I am. And he's saying, I'm speaking this way because of the weakness of your flesh. But rather than that, take that same wholehearted giving of oneself over and give it over to your new master who is God. Now you're enslaved to righteousness and you're not bothered by unrighteousness. That's the goal. That's the goal. Man, can you imagine that? I was thinking to myself, I would love to live one day 
on this planet in my Christian life where unrighteousness was no, didn't bother me one bit. It never encroached upon me, never came into my mind, sinless for a single day, just to get a grasp of what he's saying here. And that's the goal, and, and that's sanctifying. Because when I fall short of that, I go back to this union and this grounding I have in Christ and this reality and say, it'll one day be my experience. And Lord, let it be more and more my experience in this life so that you might be honored and that you might be glorified. Verse 20, he says that, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness, had none, liberated from righteousness. Therefore, he says, when you were like that, think of your life. When you were like that, what benefit were you deriving from those things? The things you are now ashamed of as a believer. I'm ashamed of all those things, aren't you? All of them. Despicable. Shameful. But when I was enslaved to sin, they were just normal part of the process. Now, as one liberated from the enslavement of sin and, and enslaved to God and to righteousness, I look back on those things and I said, what benefit was I drawing from that? Nothing. Ultimately, death. That's all you were, burnt. That's all you were earning there. For the outcome, he says, verse 21, of those things is death. But now, but now. This consideration, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. Resulting, this benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Isn't that a better way? Isn't that a better way to go? Absolutely, it is. And then he concludes, for the wages of sin is death. If you're enslaved to sin, if you're sinning, if sin is drawing you away, if you're in the old man, the wages that you have earned is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To me, this is so important. And one of the reasons that I like to take opportunities whenever they present themselves to, to demonstrate that baptism follows the believer. It follows the believer. It is critical that this profession be rooted in this reality, universally speaking. And yes, part of discipling is the baptism. Part of discipling is, is that he will grow in his faith as he's connected in, to a local body of believers. But make sure you keep those in the priority that they have. As I said, the Ethiopian eunuch, when he was baptized by Philip, he was reading in the prophets. And Philip went down beside him and came alongside and shared the gospel with him. And all the eunuch says, having realized and having believed now the gospel, he says, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? And Philip takes him down into the water and baptizes him. And he disappears. The Spirit catches Philip away. And we have no indication that that eunuch joined the Jerusalem church or an Ethiopian church. He was baptized because he believed the gospel. And the reality of his baptism would follow him wherever he united with a local fellowship of believers. There is a higher priority. Priority, as important as local church membership is to the discipling. And that's one of the reasons when these occasions present themselves as the exception, not the norm, not the rule, but as the exception, I want to take opportunity to remind you, believer, who is a member of the local body of Christ, 
that your baptism meant far more than an initiation right into a local church. It meant this is your public profession of the reality of what took place in your union with Christ, a reality upon which your eternal destiny rests. That's what it symbolizes. That's what it symbolized for Letha this morning. And that's what it proclaimed to us as her testimony of the glory of Christ as well. Amen. Stay with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the act of sovereign grace by which dead men were made to live. The scriptures tell us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You've united us to Christ and through him facilitated the death and crucifixion of the old man and facilitated the, the living of the new man. Lord, we exalt Jesus Christ in that. And I pray that, as Paul says, that we would live by faith, that we would live understanding and believing that reality. I'm, I'm convinced, Father, that the believing of it is critical to our living it out. And that believing is critical to the truth of it. And so, Father, help us this morning that we might not be bound to sin, especially those who are professing to have been liberated and freed from sin and the slavery of sin through their union with Christ. Father, how dare we live on in sin, submitting ourselves to a, a fleshly master when we've been delivered from his dominion. And so, Father, help us not to be hypocritical in the way what we profess and what we live. Bless those who've come today, Father. I pray that in these moments of invitation that you might speak to our hearts individually and bring us into conformity with your truth, with your word, with your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.